turn to Acts chapter 21. As you turn there, again, as as Denny mentioned, happy Father's Day. I hope that uh, it's a great day for for all of you as you you think about the the men that God has provided in the life of our church. Very grateful for the servant leaders that that God has has placed in our church and would encourage you to continue to to pursue that uh, by God's grace. Just very grateful uh, to the Lord for uh, the men in our church and Enjoy your candy bars you leave this morning, uh, guys, and, and uh, the, the sections of it you're able to eat, um, be able to, to, to share that in your servant leadership this morning, uh, but very grateful uh, to the Lord. Let's, let's, uh, let's, let's look at Acts chapter 21. We're going to be looking at verses uh, 17 through verse 26, and if you're able to, if you'd stand with me in honor of God as we read his word this morning. They've arrived in Jerusalem, beginning a new section of the book of Acts, and Luke writes this, When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry, and when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in and the next day, He purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for your word. Uh, For those of us who are fathers, we're grateful this morning for our, our children we would ask that you would help us to be the fathers that you would desire us to be. For our children, whom we have been given by you, we ask that you just give us wisdom in each of the unique situations we face. Help us to speak gospel truths to them in ways that are winsome when we need to be, in ways that are bold and proclaiming truth about you in, in ways that communicate our love and in ways that reflect the, the need for a Savior when we need to confront with, of, of sins. We, we just pray for wisdom in, in our communication with, with the children that you've entrusted to us. Help us to be faithful uh, leaders and, and servants. We pray for your, your word that we are looking at this morning. Help it to be uh, a, a word that penetrates our, our hearts, that your spirit would, would work within us and, and stir us to love and to good deeds for your glory. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. 
Amen. I'm going to take a few minutes longer than normal, kind of in our introductory remarks as we begin looking at this passage. And what I want to do is I want to talk about some big cultural things that are, are taking place right now in the U.S. evangelical church. I want to talk about some, some big divisions that exist potentially in the church. And then I want us to talk about how this passage helps us understand how to deal with some of those big cultural divisions. And then I want to also take this passage and apply it in, in small ways and think about individual relationships and divisions that can exist in those relationships and, and how the passage addresses that as well. But, but let's, let's first of all, let's start big. Let's talk about some big divisions that exist in the evangelical church. In April, I went to the uh, Together for the Gospel conference. It was the, the ninth and final conference. I saw Josh is wearing his uh, Together for the Gospel conference uh, shirt this morning. I don't see him now. Yeah, here he is. It says the last word on the back of his shirt. You can watch him as he leaves. And, uh, it, it means uh, you know, this is the last conference. And it was kind of sad that that was the last Together for the Gospel conference for, for me. It was there in Louisville, and I'd always enjoyed going to that conference. And so it was, it was sad that it was the last one. And that you could tell there's some sadness in the part of, of some of the speakers that it was the final conference as, as well. And the organizers said there was a variety of reasons why it was the final, final conference, but it was hard to escape that one of the reasons is that the conference had kind of run its course and were not all together for the gospel in the evangelical church in America any longer. There's, there's a lot of divisions. In fact, I was, I was able to talk with one of the speakers, Kevin DeYoung, about this. On, uh, we went on a run together. And what I mean by that is he was running and I started running alongside him uh, because, hey, it's a free country. He doesn't own downtown Louisville. <laughs> As I kept telling him, I can run wherever I want. No, he was very gracious. He let me uh, run alongside him there for a little bit. And uh, I, was, I was asking him how he felt about the, the conference coming to, to an end. And he said he felt very bittersweet about it. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I really appreciate some of the articles you've written that I think are designed to help us understand where we as evangelicals disagree with one another. I said, I really appreciate what you, you've done in that. He says, I really appreciate your shoes, because I was wearing Saucony uh, shoes. He didn't have a lot to appreciate about me. But uh, as, as we were talking, I was, I was thinking about this, this article he had written, and the article that he, that he wrote, one that I really appreciated, is, is entitled this, Why Evangelicalism Has Splintered. Why Evangelicalism Has Splintered. And you may, you may disagree with some of the things he says here, but I, I think there's some helpful things to think about. And, and in the article, he says there are kind of four major groups that exist in evangelicalism right now. And these groups are not on the base, they're, they're not separated by doctrinal differences, but by our approaches to cultural issues. And, and here are the four words that he uses in his article. I think I have this on a slide here. Here are the four words. The words are contrite, compassionate, careful, and courageous. These are kind of four groups that exist in evangelicalism. And here's how he defined them. He says, first of all, there are evangelicals who would kind of consider themselves contrite. And so this is the group that he would identify that thinks about the church's complicity and, and past and present evil. And they, they believe that the, the primary need of the church as we think about political issues or social issues is to be contrite. 
And then you have a group of evangelicals that would be compassionate. They look at the the hurting people in society, and they say, man, the, the, the church really, the dominant need of the church is to demonstrate the love of Christ to the hurting. And then there'd be the, the careful group. The careful group says, look, the church right now, as we think about the moral confusion, the intellectual carelessness that is, that is dominating our culture, what we need to do is, is take God's word and to carefully look at God's word and apply God's word to the culture in which we live. And then there'd be the courageous group. And the courageous group is the group that says, look, the, the culture is, is in such a mess and the church has compromised with the world. And so what the church needs to do is to take a stand, a bold stand against the culture. Now, what I like about what Kevin DeYoung has done here is these are all four good words, right? I think we'd all agree, yes, these are these are biblical words, and there's times where we need to be contrite, and there's times we need to be compassionate, and we need to be careful, we need to be courageous. In fact, we need to be all these things at all times, right? And so I appreciate him using these four words. But while they can all represent good things, they can also sometimes represent some dangers, right? So, for example, he, he talks about how these how these, these different groups approach different cultural issues. And, and he gives give several examples. One example is the idea of systemic racism. So you say systemic racism. How should we respond to the idea of systemic racism? Well, the, the contrite group says what? The contrite group says, look, uh, there's rampant discrimination in society, disparities that exist in our society imply discrimination, and so the church needs to be contrite. Uh, the compassionate group says, well, you know, um, that's not the only explanation, but it's, it's for sure a huge problem needs to be seen and called out. And then you have the, the careful group, and the careful group would say, well, you know, uh, we, we want to be careful not to just say that racial disparities are the cause of systemic racism. They exist for many reasons, but we want to kind of to think through that. And the courageous group says, look, that's a, that's a Marxist category, and we need to... to uh, reject the idea of systemic racism. So you see how different people in these different groups are going to say, okay, based upon kind of that, that way that they're viewing the, the need of the church right now, they're going to approach something like systemic racism or some political candidate in different ways. So what does that mean? It means that whether you agree or disagree with Kevin DeYoung's exact categories, we have some problems. What do we do when we're in the same church as someone who's approaching some of these things differently? Kevin DeYoung uses these words. I read another article where they use the words, there's a neo-fundamentalist group and a mainstream group and a neo-evangelical and a post-evangelical and blah, 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 blah. Whatever you want to call the groups, I think we could all look around and say, yeah, I, th- these groups exist. There's we're approaching, even though we have the same doctrine, we're approaching some of these things differently, and we, we see dangers in different areas than, than other groups see the dangers. So, for example, for example, I'm in, I'll just kind of be laying my cards out on the table. If you had to put me in one of the categories, I'd probably be in that careful category, right? And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm careful, Sometimes in the things that I, you say, you're careful? Yeah, I, I generally try to be careful and think biblically about how to approach, approach these issues. Now, let's say that you're in the courageous group, right? You're in the courageous group. And you're like, Daniel, 
this is how you could be frustrated with me. Daniel, uh, you're, you're too slow sometimes in seeing the danger. We, we, we need to take back the culture, and, and there's, some, there's some dangers to the church that you're not seeing and not addressing strongly enough. I, I, I've gotten that comment before. Or maybe, maybe you're in the courageous category, and uh, someone else in the church is in the, is in the compassionate category category, and they're saying, boy, the, the way that you're approaching the culture doesn't reflect the love of Christ, and so there's a danger to the church in the way that you're responding. So here, here's the question. What do we do? You're in the careful category, and you've got this, you've got this courageous brother that's, that's doing some things that you think are damaging to the gospel, and, and not, they're being too, maybe they're being, in your mind, they're being too rigid in some applications of biblical truth, and they're, they're becoming legalistic, and you think, man, that's a danger to the gospel. So, and, and the courageous brother thinks you're compromising with the world too much. How, how do, what do we do? How do we move forward? How do we stay together for the gospel, united in biblical truths? I think this text helps us. I think it helps us in some very incredible ways. And it helps us not just as we deal with these large societal evangelical church issues, but also in our individual relationships. You're a, you're a, a child, and you're listening to this music, and your parents say, boy, that music is not music you should be listening to. How, how, and you say, well, hey, don't be legalistic. How, how, does, how do the principles in this passage help you deal with that issue? Or you're a, you're, you're, a, you're a friend, and your friend has these convictions about how to, to parent, and you have these convictions about how to parent, and you both think the other are making some bad decisions. How do you move forward in that? This passage helps us. Here's, here's the main idea that I want us to, to think about together this morning. Here's the main idea. When it will not harm the message of the gospel and the pursuit of holiness— we joyfully sacrifice our freedoms to correct misunderstandings and preserve unity in the church. When it will not harm the message of the gospel, and it won't harm the pursuit of holiness, we joyfully sacrifice our freedoms to correct misunderstandings and preserve unity in the church. Now, I don't think anyone would have a problem with that sentence. That's a, that's a great sentence, if I do say so myself. I wrote it, you know. I know maybe one objection is you're right, it's too long, Daniel. Like, what's the deal? But I, there's nothing wrong with that sentence. There is a problem, though, right? And, and maybe some of you have, have sensed the problem in what I'm saying already. You say, Daniel, that first caveat that you give, when it will not harm the message of the gospel and the pursuit of holiness, that's, that's a loophole so big you can drive a, a bus through it, right? Because what, what can happen very easily? You can say, well, you know what? I would sacrifice my freedom, but the gospel you know, I would sacrifice my freedom for you, but, but holiness. So let me just say this. My desire in this statement, as we think about this statement, would be that we would all say this. Look, I love my brothers and sisters enough that I want to clarify misconceptions. And so if I'm in that, if I'm in that careful category and a, and a courageous Christian evangelical is coming to me and saying, you know, Daniel, you need to, to speak more strongly against this specific application of this biblical truth. I, I say, look, I, I want to focus on the, the, the big truths that I want to be courageous in the right areas. I can say, look, I want to at least clarify your misconceptions about my position. Or if you're in that courageous camp and the, the compassionate brother comes to you and says, look, why aren't you being more caring for this, this segment of the, the population? You say, look, I want to clarify that misconception. I'm not defensive. I'm not angry at you. 
because I believe in the gospel and the power of Jesus Christ to, to bring us together, I want to clarify any misconceptions you have about my heart and my desire to walk in obedience to the Lord. I'm not demanding that other people realize how they're at fault first. I'm not demanding that, that they make apologies to me or, or see how great I am. My general posture is a posture of humility. I want unity I want the gospel to be effective in my life, and I, I want to clarify misconceptions. That's, I believe, the path forward to where we find ourselves in today, in the church and in individual relationships. Let's unpack this by looking at some statements here. Number one, from the text as we walk through it. Number one, we are most unified when we are rejoicing in the gospel. As Small groups, as families, as a church, as a church culture, we are most unified when we are rejoicing in the gospel. Now, when I use the word we there, understanding I'm talking about genuine believers, those who have recognized the, the truth of the gospel, those who have obtained a relationship with the triune God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They have believed that God the Son came, fully God, fully man, lived a perfect life, paid for our sins on the cross, died, rose from the dead, now is at the right hand of the Father. A person who's a believer has, has placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. So when I say we, that's the group that I'm talking about. And we are most unified when we're rejoicing the gospel, when we're rejoicing in that truth that we have relationship with God through our faith in Jesus Christ. Look what happens in the text. Number one, they come to Jerusalem. They've arrived and they are received by the brothers gladly, verse 17 says. And then it says the following day, there's kind of a, a more formal meeting. Verse 18, Paul goes in with this group to James, and all the elders are present. And then Paul begins to tell them, he says, one by one, or each one thing that God had done among the Gentiles. So he's kind of re relating to them what happened over the third missionary journey, what we spent the last months talking about in Acts 18, 19, and 20. He talks to them about the, the problems he was having with the Corinthian church. He talks with them about what happened in Ephesus and the establishment of these local churches. And it, it should have been this, this time of rejoicing. And in fact, it is. Verse 20 says, when they heard it, they glorified God. And that's exactly what should happen. Paul desires for people to be just bowled over as they contemplate the miracle that God has brought Jews and Gentiles together. Remember what he said to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, the people in Ephesus. He says, Christ himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He reconciles us both to God the Father in one body through the, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so Paul is talking to them about those truths in Ephesians chapter 2. He's saying to the elders at, at Jerusalem, to James, who's there as an apostle, and that the local church leadership, the elders, he's saying, look, this is what God did in Ephesus, and, and here's how he's brought Jews and Gentiles together through Jesus Christ. And then what should be the response? Remember what he wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, that now, being rooted and grounded in love, Paul's prayer for the saints in Ephesus is that they may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so Paul's desire is for believers to see their unity in Jesus Christ and to just be bowled over by the reality that we are, we are now in relationship with the triune God, that we would be 
just in awe, his, his desire is that we would be in awe, and he prays that we would be in awe as we consider the, the height and depth and length and, of, of God's love for us manifested in Jesus Christ. When we are rejoicing in that truth, we are at our strongest in terms of unity. When we're contemplating that reality, that the people in this room from different home backgrounds and, and some different countries and different cultures and, and different understandings about various things, when we're just in awe of the fact that each of us have been the recipients of God's love and have been brought into to relationship with him through faith, in our Jesus, in, through faith in Jesus Christ, as we talk about those gospel truths to one another, there's incredible unity because we're all thinking about the same things those things that are most important to us. You know what a, a dialect is, right? A, a dialect is a kind of a way in which a language works in a, a local area. So you know, you're in the South, and there's a, a dialect. You're in the Midwest, and there's a Midwestern dialect that I had to learn when we moved here uh, 22 years ago, kind of learn how to speak Midwestern, right? Uh, our family has something we call a family. Famil elect, we say it better than that, uh, but I'm from the South. And uh, there's, what we mean is there's like a, if you're around our family, you hear us using expressions that are just, uh, they just make sense within the context of our own individual family. So for example, if you're around us and you hear one of us say, hold on to your cupcakes, uh, what we mean is things are about to get interesting. It, it came from a time we were riding in a minivan with dozens of cupcakes, and I made a sharp turn, and Whitney yelled out to the van, hold on to your cupcakes, which we thought was just a really funny uh, expression. Or uh, we used to, <laughs> you'll be around us, and we, you might hear say, chum hum de lum bum, which, which means, ah, it is what it is, uh, don't worry about it, you know, chum hum de lum bum. I can't even tell you the origins of, of that expression, right? Because uh, they're somewhat offensive. Um, <laughs> Or if, you, if you're around one of us and you, and you hear us you hear, uh, singing, well, wouldn't you think my collection's complete? That's us singing that song from The Little Mermaid. And what we're saying is uh, to Whitney, we're sorry we have so many dishes in our bedroom and we know we need to take them down to the dishwasher, okay? So we have these expressions that don't make sense. But as we, talk, we were talking about our family elects recently and just, just laughing because there's all these, when we hear us say, Jimmy, that means I don't care, as in Jimmy Crack Corn and I don't care. That's, when you're around the business, those are some of the things that you're gonna hear us say, right? When you're around Christians, there's, there's vocabulary, <laughs> There's, there's words that we say, there's attitudes that we have that, that show our unity in the gospel. There's a, a love for, for believers. We're united by our unwavering belief that even though we're sinners, Christ died for our sins, that we're saved by our faith in him, by God's grace alone. And, and there's, there's, there's unity in that. You know, I, I, sometimes, it's happened a couple times recently where I'm, I'm walking the hall and I see, I see two guys talking to each other and I know that each of them has a really strong opinion about a, a certain issue, and they're on opposite sides of, of an issue, like really strong. Like they've both spoken to me about it recently, and they're both really passionate about it. And as they're talking here at church, they have no idea that they, they have differences with one another on that issue. And 
they, they probably never will. I mean, it's, it's these guys right here. They don't even know. <laughs> they would get in a huge argument if Doug knew what Richard thought. No. It's just, it's kind of funny. But the reality is they're united in the gospel, right? And so they're not concerned about these, these other issues. Here's the second thing I want us to think about. Number two, number two, we are most, we are most at risk of schism when we're distracted by our cultural grievances, okay? We're most at risk of schism, that is, of, of, of disunity, of falling apart from relationship when we're distracted by our cultural grievances. And a, a grievance means a complaint. It could be real, it could be imagined. And by, by culture, I mean our, kind of our subgroup. How are we determined to de- define ourselves By our ethnicity, by our socioeconomic status, by whatever it is, we're most at risk of schism when we're focused on cultural grievances, on, on wrongs that we perceive to be committed against us. Here's what happens next in the text. Things have gone well, right? They, they've just been rejoicing about the gospel. And then the elders tell Paul through, through James a, a few things, three things. Let's, let's walk through what they tell him. Number one, they say this, there are thousands among the Jews who believe the gospel, right? It says there are thousands among the Jews of those who've, who've believed. And remember Acts has talked about in chapters 2 and 4 how thousands are added to their, to their number. Acts chapter 6 talks about how the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, which brings us to the second thing they tell Paul. It says they are all zealous for the law. So the church culture, Paul, that exists here in the church in Jerusalem, surprise, surprise, it's pretty Jewish. They're culturally Jewish. And, and that makes sense, right? First of all, they're coming from Jewish backgrounds. They're coming from a Jewish culture. And also, they're in the midst of a very godless Gentile culture. The Gentiles are engaged in all sorts of immorality. They're engaged in all sorts of idolatry. And so the Jews, as they become Christians, they continue to live uh, as Jews in some very large way to kind of help separate themselves from the Gentile lifestyle. Those are their two options in their minds. We can either live like Jews or we can live like Gentiles. Gentiles live these immoral, godless lives characterized by immorality and idolatry. Let's not do that. Let's continue to live like Jews. Okay, so that's the second thing that they tell Paul. And then the third thing the elders there in the church in Jerusalem tell Paul is that these Jews who have become Christians but still live as Jews, here's what they've been told. They've been told that you are demanding that people abandon their Jewish culture and life and that they must live like Gentiles. That's what they've been told. The church here in Jerusalem thinks that you're going around telling everybody that they have to live like Gentiles. And they're not too happy about it, right? They have some misconceptions about Paul's message of the gospel. Now, Paul had said that you don't have to live like a Jew. He had certainly said that justification, being declared righteous by God, did not demand that a person walk in obedience to the law. He had said that circumcision doesn't matter. Remember 1 Corinthians 7, 18. Uh, Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Doesn't matter. You don't have to change your culture to become a Christian. But what Paul had said had become mischaracterized. He'd been grossly misunderstood. Now, 
Put yourself in Paul's sandals, right? You've just come from the third missionary journey. It has been incredibly hard. You have traveled thousands of miles proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church in Corinth have just been a bunch of jerks to you. You've worked hard to preserve unity. You have just told the elders, like, this is what God is doing. This is the the amazing things that he's done. And then they say, yeah, but we're kind of concerned about some rumors about you that aren't true, but that's kind of our main thing. What are you going to do to say if what are you going to say if you're Paul? Well, chum hum de lum bum. <laughs> I don't care. That's not true. That, that's that's not that's not an accurate assessment of my of my beliefs at all. So first of all, you might be kind of ticked off that they think that about you, and then you might say, and you know what? Actually, if we're going to be really frank here about our concerns, my concern is you guys you got a bunch of Judaizers in your church. Do you know how much pain the people in your church have caused me as, as some of the, the people have listened to some of the things they've said and followed these rumors and, and all the things I've encountered from them? Let's get real. Let's talk about the problems in your church. That's how Paul could have responded. And if he did choose to focus on grievances against him, everybody's in trouble. We see this all the time in the church, right? You're in a mom's group. And one of the moms hears about the decision you've made to send your kid to, to public school. She says, oh, oh, I guess you don't care about your kids being indoctrinated. Or a mom hears that you're sending your kid to private school. Oh, I, I guess you're fearful of the world. Or hear that you're homeschooling and Oh, I, I guess you're really fearful of the world. Yeah. What, what do we do? That, that's, not, that's not true of me. I don't want my kid indoctrinated. I'm not afraid of the world. I'm not really afraid of the world. What you've said about me isn't true. What kind of hard attitude can be? We are most at risk of schism when we're distracted by our cultural grievances. How dare you say that about me? How could you possibly think that about me? That's not true. We need to get to the point where we recognize this is a potential problem and our desire is to do what is necessary to move forward in relationship. What, what, what do we do? What do we do in those circumstances? Here's the third thing I want us to see from the text. Number three, we are most effectively using our freedom in Christ when we joyfully constrain ourselves for the sake of the gospel. We have freedom in Christ. We most effectively use that freedom that we have in Christ when we joyfully constrain ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Verse 22. Paul, here's, here's the scenario. They're going to hear that you've come, and when they hear that you arrive, everyone's going gonna to cause schism. What's to be done? What do we do? Answer, we do this. You need to do what we tell you. Uh, apparently, there in the church, there are some 
four men who had taken upon themselves a, a vow. And the best thing we can assume here is this was a, a, a Nazarite vow. That would be a, a very Jewish vow to take. It's from Numbers chapter 6. And a person who takes this vow agrees to not drink alcohol while they have this vow. They don't shave their, their hair and they, they restrain from any unclean things. And so a person who has just taken this vow is, is trying to separate themselves from the world. In fact, Nazarite comes from the word Nazir, which means to consecrate or devote yourself to. And so apparently these four people living in a culturally Jewish life and said, okay, we're going to take this vow. We want to recognize our, our separation from the world. And so to glorify God, this is what we're going to do. And so what the leaders in the Jerusalem church say to Paul is, look, what we want you to do is to purify yourself along with them, pay for their expenses. And as people see you do that, it says, they, and also pay that they can shave their heads after they've been growing their hair out. This will thus all will know that there's nothing in what they've been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So we want you to do this, and what's our goal? Well, it's there in verse 24. Our goal in doing this isn't so that everyone will know that you were right and we were wrong. The goal isn't so everyone will know how smart you are and how dumb we are. The goal is just so misconceptions will be rectified and that they will, they will know that the things they've been told about you aren't true, but you're also culturally living as a Jew. You know, verse 21, it could have been discouraging, like I said, right? It says, after Paul has told them all the things that he's been doing, then they kind of get into this thing about their, their problems with him. And instead of being excited about the gospel, they're, they're distracted by these, these, these cultural issues, these cultural grievances. It also represents a ministry opportunity, doesn't it? Sometimes where these misconceptions exist are where ministry takes place, for an opportunity for us to, to model Christ. How do you think Paul felt about their suggestion? Well, consider what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says this, look, I'm, I'm free, right? For though... I am free from all. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And why does he do that? He says, I do that. I, I give of myself. I willingly give up my own freedoms. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Some of you right now are engaged in a conflict with other believers. You're engaged in a conflict with, with another believer and part of it, at least at, at part of the root, is it's, it's this battle of wills. You're convinced that you're right, they're convinced that they're right, and you're convinced that they're 
Maybe you're a little wrong in some areas, but they are far more fundamentally wrong than you are, and they are fundamentally misunderstanding you. And for you to give an inch would be to give in to their misunderstanding, and, and you're at this impasse. There's no way forward. I think right now, culturally, as evangelicals, we're at this impasse where we are, we are so convinced that the other side, other sides misunderstand what's really at stake and what we really believe, and, and, we're, at this, and we're not willing to, 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 to give an inch. How, how do you move forward? This is the way that we move forward, by giving of our freedoms to minister to others. Some Christians, sadly, are enslaved to their own liberty. F.F. Bruce says this, a truly freed spirit like Paul's is not in bondage to his own freedom. Another commentator said it this way, to forgo one's own freedom for the sake of others is the highest form of Christian freedom and the fulfillment of love for one's neighbor. A lot of the angst in the Christian world, both large and small, can be solved by this, this powerful tool. A friend accuses us of, of capitulating to the world in our, our schooling decision, and, we, and we, can, we can get defensive, and we can say, no, you're doing this, and you're doing that, or we can say, look, you know what? What you're identifying as a problem is a problem that I do not want to capitulate to the world. Let's, you, know what I'm, you know what I'm doing? I'm, I'm, I'm doing this with my children to help them understand the truth of the gospel. I'm memorizing scripture with, with my kids. Do you want to memorize scripture with us? Let's do this together because what you're identifying as a problem is a real problem, and I don't want that to be true. Let me, let me correct your misunderstandings of what I believe, and, and let's, let me model, let me give up my own freedom and, and model how to walk in obedience in the area that you're identifying. Or maybe someone's upset about you about your lack of support for a particular politician, and you say, boy, you need to be excited about this politician, and you think, you know what? Uh, I'm just really not. They said, well, I guess you're not really uh, pro-life like I am. I said, hey, you know what? Uh, I want to correct that misconception. Let's go to a pro-life rally together. Let's serve some adoptive families. Let's, let's, let's do some things that, that show you that, that, I, that your misconceptions about me are, are, are not accurate, not because I have to do that, but because I, I desire to do that. I, I love you enough that I want to be humble enough and gracious enough to, to show you that we are united on those things that are most important. Now, some of you are going to struggle with this emotionally, right? <laughs> like, even maybe as I'm talking, maybe there's, yeah, okay, but Daniel, you don't understand this person that I'm engaged in this conflict with. To back down would be really, really painful. Good, right? That's the fruit of the gospel in your life. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 2? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, account, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even, on, even death on a cross." As you think about taking these steps, say, okay, I have this freedom in Christ. I have this brother or sister that I'm engaged in this conflict with, or I'm thinking about the larger cultural issues, and I, I know that I need to, to give of myself, to, to sacrifice my freedom, to, to show others that I'm, I'm in agreement with them on the major issues of the gospel. As, as I take those steps to, to do that, it's, it's going to potentially be painful. What are some things to, to keep in mind as you do that? Let me, let me give you a couple thoughts 
keep in mind as we humble ourselves and give up our freedom. First of all, I think it's helpful for us who are in Christ to remember that different believers are going to prioritize different things. They're going to see dangers in different areas. And so when I disagree with another believer, it it doesn't mean that I don't agree on the dangers. Here, the, the Jews believe that there's a danger of immorality. And so they're, they're very concerned that, that Paul and, and other people who are ministering to the Jews recognize the danger, or ministering to the Gentiles, recognize the, the dangers of immorality among Gentiles. So as a Christian, when I'm talking to a different Christian, and we have, we have different understandings about how to approach this cultural issue, it's, it's wise for us to remember, look, we both are identifying some dangers. It's dangerous to not be compassionate. It's dangerous to not be courageous. It's dangerous to not be careful. It's dangerous to not be contrite. We're recognizing some good biblical dangers, even though at times we're going to overemphasize the wrong things, right? Remember also, there's a difference between people who are attacking the gospel and people who are wrongly concerned about your actions. It's very important to remember. There there are times where people are attacking the gospel. Those are enemies, to the cross. There are other times when people question our actions, they are not enemies of the cross. They're not even our enemies. Shouldn't be, right? It's another important thing, I think, to keep in mind. Another thing to remember, remember that growth is slow, slow, slow. Growth in the Christian life is very, very slow. One of the the beauties of ministering together in a a church for a long time is is to watch the growth, right? One of the discouraging things is how long that growth takes to occur. And there are some, another thing to remember is, is that there are some aspects of our personality that are always going to be a challenge to our sanctification. A person who has a courageous personality is always going to potentially have a a danger of not speaking in a loving way, potentially, for example, right? Remember also that what comes out of our mouths in conflict is the fruit of what's in our heart. The way that we speak to one another is, is crucial to make sure that we have, have, have biblical words that are, that are coming out of a heart, that come from a heart that's controlled by the Holy Spirit, rec- reflecting the, the fruit of the Spirit. Number four, number four. We are most loving when our actions don't endanger doctrine and holiness. Originally, I wrote doctrine or holiness. I think it's better to say doctrine and holiness. These these things don't exist apart from one another. Here's what the Jews there in Jerusalem tell Paul. They, They assure him, hey, look, the gospel's not at stake here. We are telling you about the Jews. But as for the Gentiles, verse 25, the Gentiles who believe, we're not asking them to live like Jews. We've Remember, we've sent this letter based from Acts 15 with our judgment that, we should, that they should abstain from what's been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what's been strangled and from sexual immorality. And so we're asking them to live a holy life, but we're not asking them to live a Jewish life. And so we're most loving when our actions don't endanger doctrine or holiness. We're not asking people to 
engage in activities that's, that's going to compromise the gospel. And so that was a potential here. The, they could have compromised the gospel. The, the Jewish church could have compromised the gospel by saying to the Gentiles, you have to live like Jews. And so Paul would have had no part in that. They also could have endangered the gospel by calling the, the Gentiles, or by, by calling the, the Jews to live by, like Gentiles, putting legalistic restrictions upon them. They don't do either one of those things. As we give up our freedom for other believers, there's, there's red lines, right, that we don't cross. We don't give up our commitment to good doctrine. We don't give up our commitment to holy living. Here, here's, a, here's an example. This past week, the Southern Baptist Convention was held, and I, I'm not... Uh, never been to a Southern Baptist convention or, or anything like that. We're, we're not uh, officially a Southern Baptist church, but we have a lot of, we, we support uh, some of the Southern Baptist mission programs and things like that, have a lot of love for that, that group of believers. Send a lot of our uh, people to Southern Baptist seminaries. It was interesting. They had several issues that they were trying to, to wrestle with, and, and one of them was what to do about Saddleback Community Church, where uh, Rick Warren is, is the pastor. And uh, Saddleback had begun to ordain some women pastors. They had a, they just hired a Rick Warren's replacement, a husband and wife pastoral team. So they were in, in clear violation of the Southern Baptists' faith and message. And um, it's interesting the response. Like, what, 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 what should we do with with Saddleback Community Church? It was interesting how the the people were talking about that. And one of the things that people were saying is, look, uh, Rick Warren's a nice guy which I agree. I've actually hugged Rick Warren. I was at a conference, and, and he, was, uh, he was there, and, and he, he gave me a big hug, and he looked at Whitney, and he said, have you hugged a pastor today? And he gave her a big hug, and she said, yes, I have. Um, you know, and, and he's super sweet, right? Nice guy, and uh, he, he's a brother in Christ, right? But he's, he's really wrong on this issue of what to do with, with women in leadership and how to engage women in leadership. And a lot of people were saying, well, as people were disagreeing with him, people were saying, well, but he's so nice. It, it doesn't matter, right? How nice you are has no relevance on whether an action is, is obedient or disobedient to the Lord. And as I want to have unity with, with a guy like, like Rick Warren, I don't say, well, you know what? I'm going to give up my freedom and start ordaining women as pastors. Like that, That's not how we build unity, right? That's where we need courage, we have unity in the areas that we can by giving of our freedom to, to correct misconceptions, not to engage in an activity that we believe to be disobedient to the Lord. I'm going to give up my cultural opinions for your sake, but I'm not going to give up holiness or, or doctrine. One of the articles I read uh, asked this question. One of the articles was talking about different different groups, you know, the, the neo-fundamentalists and the traditional and the neo-evangelicals. It said, can these people exist in the same church any longer, right? Is, is it possible for them to worship together? And I had two thoughts. <laughs> One thought is, I should never mention this article uh, because I don't want people in my church to suddenly realize, wait a minute, that guy's a neo-fundamentalist. I can't like that guy. But in all seriousness, I thought, I'm just so grateful I'm grateful to the Lord 
that, that I believe, by God's grace, we, we are focused on the things that God calls us to be focused on. And there are going to be times where we have some very serious conversations about, okay, this is a situation we need to be courageous in. This is an area we need to be careful in. This is an area we need to be compassionate in or contrite in. We're going to have those conversations as a church, as believers, as we look to God's word. But as we do so, we are going to be united in the gospel with a common recognition that we have been, by God's grace, brought into relationship with the triune God through faith in Jesus Christ. And as we are united in that, we are going to be willing, each of us, in our individual relationships and in our cultural relationships, we are going to be willing to joyfully give of our freedoms whenever possible to prevent misunderstandings and to preserve the unity of the church for the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus this, this Father's Day, we are grateful to you for being the, the perfect father. Every human father is a, an imperfect image of what our, our Heavenly Father truly is. And by your grace, we've been brought into relationship with you and can experience the, the, the joy of a, of a true father who loves us perfectly, who disciplines us perfectly, who restores us perfectly. We thank you for yourself. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.